Social Sciences at Hunter College, and I'm very happy to welcome you to Hunter College, but for an event which we are happy to say is being sponsored by Penn. How the Russians Read Us is the culminating event of a conference that we've been running here at Hunter this weekend called Interpreting Each Other, Russian and American Literature in Translation. And for this event, we have had 12 Russian translators of American and British literature meeting with American translators of Russian literature and translators of American literature into several other languages as well. Our event at Hunter was sponsored by Penn American Center, by the Soros Foundation, by Hunter College, and in particular, its Russian and Russian Area Studies program, which we are very, very proud of here at Hunter, of, by Paul Schaefer of Alavie Russie, and by Morris Philip of Philip Cups, and Stolichnaya Vodka. <laughs> the person who is going to be moderating this event is one of our distinguished members of our Russian program. And he is connected, his name is Emil Dreitzer, and he is connected to today's event in more than one way. A member of the Penn American Center, he is a Russian-born writer who came to the United States in 1975. His stories have appeared in leading Moscow publications in both pre- and post-perestroika Russia and in English translation in the United States. As our faculty member here at Hunter, Professor Dreitzer teaches Russian language, um, literature, and practical translation classes at the Russian division and in the Russian Area Studies program. He also conducts workshops on creative writing at the New School for Social Research, and Emil will introduce our guests this afternoon. Emil Dreitzer, thank you. Um, today we have a rather unusual event because of a rather rare opportunity for a writer to meet his translator. Uh, something with microphone? You hear me? Well, okay. uh, what is a writer's job? Uh, as uh, John Gardner uh, wrote in his Art of the Fiction, a writer of fiction or a poet has a vision or a dream that he recreates in words. And the effort of a writer, when he writes his dream down in a paper, to be sure that nothing, just nothing, stops the dream, nothing actually wakes up the reader when he is emerged in this dream. So this kind of a sustaining storytelling or sustaining vision of uh, what writer has is a job that a translator in another language has to take over and be sure that a reader in another language has the same kind of vision. And it's uh, most of the time for writers in um, American writers and their Russian translators due to well-known historical circumstances practically had very little opportunity even to see each other. And it's a rather sad comment to the political climate in the Soviet Union for a long stretch of the, of the history that uh, one of the best translators of American literature, practically you know, 
all of them, with a few exceptions, were ever able even to travel to the United States and to see America on their own and understand those realities where they are describing in Russian language for themselves. And now with um, efforts of um, Hunter College and Penn, this kind of uh, unusual event took place finally. We're all very happy about it. So today we have a group of distinguished American writers and no less distinguished the Russian translators finally meet each other. It's a very emotional moment and now we will be witnessing of this kind of historical rapprochement <laughs> between the initial creator and his ambassador into another language. And the first would, uh, how, uh, we would like to hear is Mary Morris uh, that I'm sure is widely known in this country. She's, she's the author of six books, two novels, two collections of short stories, two travel memoirs, including The Waiting Room, a novel, and most recently, Wall to Wall, From Beijing to Berlin by Rail. Her collection of short stories, Vanishing Animals and Other Stories, was awarded the Rome Prize in Literature from the American Academy and Institute of Arts and Letters. She has been the recipient of grants from the Guggenheim Foundation, the National Endowment for the Arts, for the Arts, and the New York Foundation for the Arts. She is currently teaching at Princeton University. And her translator from Russia is Nina Bat. She um, was educated at the Gorky or in Institute of Literature in Gorky, uh, um, Gorky Institute of Literature in Moscow. Uh, she specialized in translating English and uh, Latvian classics and children's literature. Among the uh, writers she translated into Russian is Twain, Thackeray Dickens, and uh, Sherwood Anderson, Ring Lardner, and recently uh, Joyce Carol Oates, William Saroyan, uh, and Mary Morris for Anthology of American Literature. So, ladies and gentlemen, let's greet Mary Morris and Nina Bott. It really is a pleasure and an, an honor really to be here. Um, a, a number of years ago, I read an article um, that MIT had come up. This was at the height of the Cold War, sort of about 15 years ago, that MIT technicians had come up with a computer program that would translate from Russian into English. And they felt this would eliminate the, uh, the problem of the translator. And they ran a, uh, a report, an engineering report through. And they were very perplexed when a very technical um, engineering report called for the use of a water buffalo. And so they had to resort, resort to a human being, and they found out that, in fact, water buffalo was hydraulic ram. And that was how the uh, computer had come up with that. To my knowledge, I don't, know, I don't know if any of you know what has happened with this computer program, but obviously it's not in great use. And for me, it's a wonderful honor to have my translator, Nina Bott, here in person in the flesh and not some kind of computer program. Um, I think this is a very 
human experience for all of us. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about Nina's translation of my short story, The Glass Wall. Uh, this was published in 1979, and I want to tell you a little bit about the origin of the story, and I have to give you a little background about the story. Um, I wrote the story in 1978 when I was living in Mexico, and I was living in a town in a very poor neighborhood, and right next to me there was a very rich neighborhood, and the rich neighborhood had a wall around it, but there was a hole in the wall. And the wonderful thing about the hole in the wall was it was a one-mile shortcut into town through uh, paved and well-lit streets. And it was a very important part of my experience there that I could cut through this shortcut. It was also very important to the men and women who lived in the district of San Antonio, where I lived, um, because they could carry their children and their packages and all the things they needed to carry through the shortcut into the neighborhood where there was very little electricity and very little water. And one day I was coming home at about 10 o'clock at night and I reached the hole in the wall and it was no longer there. And they had closed it up. And the next day some men came in with broken bottles, Coke bottles and 7-Up bottles, and they proceeded to put these shards on the top of the wall and um, so that you couldn't jump over anymore. And after that, I had to take the long way around, as did all of the people from my, my neighborhood. And I would see them coming home late at night on this long, long stretch of road carrying children. It was dark, it was unlit, and it was dangerous. And for me, it was just an inconvenience. But I started to think, what would it be like if you had to get to work at a certain time or if you had to carry your children, um, if you had to carry all your groceries, if you had to carry water, and you had to go a mile out of your way? And one night I was coming home, and there was lights from the rich neighborhood that illumined the glass shards, and I started to think of a story about the wall called The Glass Wall. And I started to think about a character, and her name is Rosa in the story. Uh, Rosa is a young Mexican woman. She is a single parent. She has a little boy. His name is El Negrito, the little black one. Um, her lover, a man named Trapper, He's called Trapper because he traps animals, and Americans come down from um, the border, and he takes them hunting into the hills. Um, her lover, who she's known all of her life, uh, has not exactly abandoned her, but let's say he's not rushing to legitimize the child either. So they have a rather tenuous relationship. And Rosa is beginning to take a stand against him and is kind of closing him out of her life. Uh, Rosa works for a senora in the rich neighborhood, and the senora pays her $3 a day. And the $3 is very important to Rosa because she has to provide for her child. But when the senora goes up to El Paso to go to the dentist, she doesn't pay Rosa the $3. So the job is very important, and getting there on time is important, and all those things become important for Rosa. Um, Rosa's mother, Dolores, runs a... a Dolores Two-Step is her name. She's named after the Two-Step snake, which... Um, it bites you and you die after two steps. Um, Rosa's mother runs what's called the Cookie Dream Factory, and it's a bakery, but the cookies tell your future. Uh, that is, you go in and, and Dolores will give you a cookie that tells you what's supposed to happen to you. And to Trapper, uh, Rosa's lover, uh, Dolores keeps giving him a tree because he sa she says he's going to be buried under one very soon. Um, I'm just going to read a very brief section and then Nina and I are going to collaborate and read together. Um, this little section is what happens, what, lo what Rosa sees when she um, goes to the wall 
for the first time when it's been closed off and then she sees the glass. Um, on this particular night, oh, this is another thing that's important. Trapper decides he wants to marry her. And she says to him, I will marry you when you blow up the wall. So she has given him this. She has told him that he has to do this. He has a Jeep, and on this particular night, he's driving her home. They were driving past the wall, and suddenly she saw the bright, shimmering fragments in the moonlight, lime green, a soft coffee brown, a bright yellow and gold and white, and almost blood red. They were shiny and pointed, and they stuck up in the moonlight like cactus on the prairie. She grabbed Trapper's hand on the shift and motioned for him to stop. That wall, he said, watching as Rosa stared and then jumped down from the jeep. Is that the wall? She walked over to the wall, El Negrito in her arms. She let her hand slide over the sharp, pointed shards of glass that stuck out from the still moist plaster on the top of the wall and along the sloping sides. Glass from Coke bottles and 7-Up bottles, bright blue mineral water bottles and dull brown beer bottles, broken on barroom floors, Fanta and Pepsi-Cola, glass from the bottles she drank all day, bottles from companies her people did not own. Um, and then Trapper's going to go blow up the wall, but the hunters that he's taken hunting accidentally shoot him, and he almost dies, but he doesn't die. Um, and everyone is surprised because one of Dolores' predictions has almost come true. Um, and now Rosa decides that she must take action, and this is the, the climax of the story. And I'll read it first in English, and then Nina will read it in Russian. Oh, there's one other thing you need to know for the end. Uh, Rosa has a neighbor. His name is Uncle Tio, and he has a pig named Petunia, and Petunia has left home, uh, and Uncle Tio also has a sledgehammer and a shack, and those are his worldly possessions, including the pig. She walked down the road until she came to Uncle Tio's shack. Uncle Tio was out cold, head on the table, drunk, and she took his sledgehammer from under the table and moved fast down the road, her feet flying over the cobblestone, dragging the sledgehammer behind her. She walked until she came to where the hole had been. She looked for a moment at where the pale new cement and stone met with the old, and the new stone took shape next to the old. First it was a lady, dressed up for church on a parade. Then it was a jockey, riding his horse fast over the finish. She ran her fingers over the glass, as if it were piano keys she was about to play. And then she brought the sledgehammer over her head with both hands and smashed it into the wall. Glass splintered all around her like tiny fish darting through dark water. She closed her eyes tight and brought it down again. She smashed at the sharp edges, grinding them fine as sand. She smashed the way Trapper had smashed dough, and she smashed just as easily. The people from Rio Douro came to their windows when they heard the sound, but no one dared come down and see what was happening. All they saw was the hammerhead coming up and glass flying in tiny, brilliant splinters. She kept at it. When the glass was gone, she worked at the stone. She saw the people staring down at her with darkened faces she could not recognize. She knocked out one stone and then another. She knocked out a hole large enough for a child to pass through. Then she stopped. Trapper would finish the job. She knew she had him where she wanted him now, and he would do this for her. She had broken him as she had broken the wall. She started slowly up the hill, tired this time, dragging the sledgehammer so that it bounced on the cobbles. She stopped when she heard a sound she knew she didn't make. 
At first she thought it was men who'd come to harm her. The ones she'd always feared would hide and jump at her when she didn't expect it. She thought it was they who'd just pushed their way through the hole she'd opened in the wall, but she saw nothing. She started walking again, but then she heard the sound again, and she knew she was being followed. She turned, gripping the hammer, ready to smash whoever it was, when she saw, walking behind her on the dark stretch of road, Petunia, methodically working her way home. From behind their windows of glass, the Rio Doro people now watched the pig. Pigs, they say, are smart. And this one, who seemed to recognize either Rosa or the sledgehammer, caught up with her. And together they walked the rest of the way up the hill. Would you heal me like that? Whatever you feel comfortable. I need light. Well, it doesn't matter. Rosa шла по дороге, пока не дошла до лачуги дядюшки Тио. Старик сидел у входа, положив голову на стол. Он был пьян, и она вытащила из-под стола кувалду и заспешила по дороге, проворно переступая по булыжинам, волоча за собой тяжелую кувалду. Она остановилась у замурованного прохода. Новая кладка проступала в стене бледным неровным пятном. Сперва Рози почудилась, это дама, разодетая для поездки в церковь или на прогулку. Потом это жакей гонит лошадь на финише. Она осторожно перебрала пальцами по стеклам, как по клавишам пианино, точно собиралась заиграть. Потом обеими руками взметнула над головой кувалду и грохнула об стену. Мелкие осколки стекла так и брызнули во все стороны, словно стая мальков в темной воде. Зажмурившись, Роза ударила еще раз. Она била по острым краям стекол, дробила их в мелкий песок. Она их крушила, как Эль-Негро крушил вчера тесто, и это давалось ей так же легко. Заслышав шум, обитатели Риодора подходили к окнам, но никто не осмелился выйти посмотреть, что же там творится. Им видны были только взмахи кувалды и, и блестки летящих осколков, а Роза не унималась. Покончив со стеклами, принялась за камни. Она видела, что из окон на нее при... смотрят чьи-то мрачные лица, но не узнавала их. Вышибла один камень, другой, и, наконец, пробила дыру, в которую мог бы пролезть ребенок, и успокоилась. Эль-Негра закончит. Она теперь знает, чего хочет, он теперь на месте, он это для нее сделает. Она с ним справилась, как справилась со стеной. Роза устала. Она медленно поднималась в гору, волоча кувалду, а та подскакивала на камнях мостовой. И вдруг она замерла, услышав какой-то посторонний шум. За ней гонится, мелькнула в голове, сейчас нападут. Она всегда боялась, что ее подкараулят и нападут из-за угла. Наверное, кто-то пролез в дыру, которую она проломила в стене. Оглянулась, никого. Пошла дальше, и опять послышались те же звуки. Ну да, ее преследуют. Роза обернулась, стиснула кувалду, сейчас она им задаст кто бы там ни был, и увидела, что следом за нею по темной дороге деловито семенит петуня. Из своих красивых окон жители Риадора глядели на свинью. Говорят, свиньи умны, а это, как видно, узнала то ли кувалда, то ли розу, и догнала ее, и остаток пути в гору они прошли вместе. Um, I, I 
guess I have to say that was an incredible experience for me to hear my work read in Russian. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I can't describe it. It's really, it's like being on another planet or something. Um, I guess we're going to have a talk about the story a little bit, right? All right, if you like. Yeah, I mean, I. Do you want me to ask questions? Do you want to just talk? Just as you like. The only thing I want to say that for me it's such a happy occasion, and it seems almost a dream, really, for for a translator to meet. Uh, his author, uh, well, over the ocean. And, uh, well, it seems to me that, uh, oh, as far as I remember, uh, Jonathan Swift once said about the style, while defining the style, he said, proper words in proper places make a true definition of style. And it seems to me that in this story there are proper words in proper places. And the only dream I had to preserve it in, uh, in uh, Russian and not to spoil it. Well, uh, I'm of, I'm of uh, that kind of uh, uh, translators who are uh, never satisfied with their work. And uh, each time I read uh, my translation, there is always something that I want to improve. It's just the same here, too. Well, it's the same for a writer, right? I mean, this Is it the same for right, writers? Right. I mean, I have... Must be. I hadn't read the story over in many years, um, but I, I read it over to prepare for this, and I saw all these little things that I wanted to change, and I thought, oh, if I just, you know, just change this word or that word so I can understand the feeling of, of a translator. I guess the, the kinds of choices you have to make also, um, I don't know, you must, you could read something over and w wonder about a choice that you'd made, right? Yes. Is that, yeah? That's right. Yeah. Um, well, what did what was the process for you of preserving the dream of the story? I mean, what you just see, um, seemingly it uh, well, um, it seemed uh, most. Uh, it seems to me most interesting for me was to uh, keep true to the intonation. Uh, here we have such a, if I may say so in English, um, blended together the lyrical part of it which is very important, the dramatic part of the drama, the inner drama that um, the girl is experiences and the ultimate victory she wins uh, over herself and her lover mm -hmm. and, uh, and also it is a, pro a protest against um, well, s social things yes. that are evident there. But what I like about it that it is not uh, primitively shown. It, it's all Mm, uh, the intonation all through is um, smooth. It's, um, it's flowing like that. And it was important, and uh, of course, to uh, be true to it uh, and to, to take it all through the story to the very end, the rhythm of it, the, the flow of it, the, this intonation. Mm -hmm. um, I had, yes. No, mm -hmm. I, I think this is a story. I probably wrote about 20 drafts of this story because I didn't want it to be a didactic story. Yes. I mean, I wanted, it, okay. I wanted the story to tell itself. Um, but one of the things I was very curious about for um, a Russian reader, in a sense, I mean, particularly the, the part, the wall with the Coke bottles and the 7-Up bottles and all that, there's a certain, for an American reader, I think there's a, there's a certain anti-American, anti-imperialist feel to the story, which, which I intended, but not in a didactic way. And I'm wondering, how would a Russian reader understand 7-Up, for example? You know, those bottles are 
you know, yes, all I that. think Russian reader. Well, uh, I I don't like the idea of an abstract reader. You see, mm -hmm. well, the intelligent reader would uh, immediately understand it, and the way that it was it was never expressed in a detective way, right. but just uh, the way it was done here uh, was very good. Mm -hmm. And of course, I think it was absolutely clear. Uh -huh. and the, a little okay. bit anti-American um, tendency well, yes. was also <laughs> very right. Yes. Uh huh. Okay. So you think someone would understand those those kinds of I'm references? Sure. Okay. That's that's the Russian readers are n n not a bit um, uh, sillier than American readers. <laughs> <laughs> no, but when something is a specific cultural reference, you know, you wonder how. Um, for example, we were talking earlier about the, the um, Uncle Tio. Yes. For those of you who know Spanish, um, that's a redundancy. Uncle and Tio is English and Spanish. And the reason he has this name is because he was born right on the border in Nogales. And that's what he's always called, that's what people have always called him. And I, I asked Ni Nina how she dealt with that. Well, I, I, I preserved Dadushka Tio. Uh, and in the text, it's absolutely clear. Right. So there was no need to invent anything else. Right. right. This way. So it was easy then. <laughs> <laughs> it's never easy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know. What do you? Well, you, you see, well, I had a problem. I had a problem with the title. Ah, uh, the title. And I, I, up to now, I'm not quite sure whether I have done uh, right. But you see. Uh, the image of the wall uh, is so vivid and clear, and it dominates the whole story. Right. But it was called the glass wall. And in Russian, immediately you feel that glass is transparent and it is uh, uh, brittle. Brittle. Brittle, yes, you uh -huh. see. But there is just the other way around, the impression is. So I called it the, mm, well, in, in English it will be the prickly wall, because there were all, all these uh, uh, sharp uh, um, edges of glass. Mm -hmm. uh, and in the Russian they it is kalyuchya stina. And now, you see, if ever the story will be reprinted, I'll leave only stina, because uh, that will be the image of the whole story, and I think it will be enough. But, but let, not me, the but glass let me ask wall. you though, because see, for me, I intended the notion of a glass wall to be a bit of a contradiction. You know that it, you wonder how could a wall be glass? Um, and also, I was playing a little bit with the windows of the houses of the rich people, the way people protect themselves. Would that be not clear to a Russian reader in terms of that kind of contradiction? Well, uh, you see, I don't. I don't think so. Maybe it was done in, in a too subtle a way mm -hmm. to be uh, to be understood that way. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. And what else was there? Oh, I think it, it was yeah. most difficult thing for me. The title. No, the title. That yes. was the hardest thing. Yes, uh -huh. that was the hardest thing to uh -huh. decide. Uh -huh. how, I'm curious how you go about translating translating a story. I mean, do you read it several times before you set down to work, or...? Of course. Yeah, okay. Oh, <laughs> I, I must see... If, you see, I must act, because uh, every translator is an actor. Uh -huh. Also a composer sometimes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the less he's a composer, the better, maybe. <laughs> but, uh, well, anyway, the actor, absolutely. And, uh, 
well. I don't uh, uh, talk about his going to be a, sci a historian, a scientist, and all that, but first of all, an actor. And before you feel, uh, we see uh, the role of Petunia uh, attracted me very much. So <laughs> the wandering pig. That the wandering, <laughs> the wandering uh, pig. pig. Right. Yes, right. <laughs> that was the... Right. Why, big role. Why, why you just liked her as a character? I mean, just oh, I liked you know this blend of dramatic and uh, humorous, and I liked the way uh, this humor was inter introduced, at very tactically mm -hmm. and uh, very musically, I should say. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Do you have anything? That's all. Yeah. Thank I think you. they you must be tired of us. Can we have question? Can we take a well, question or not? Question, uh, okay. Finish, we'll open some time Great. Can we call it a day? Can we call it a day? Yes, not they, yes. <laughs> we'll do the <laughs> All right. Thank we'll you. have a wine reception after that. Thank you. Well, the organizers told me that uh, I should say that we'll have a wine reception after the party, but I think that uh, we have so much fun, we don't think about wine now, right? Uh, the next pair of uh, American writer and uh, Russian translator is Grace Pelly, who was born in the Bronx, New York, in 1922. She attended public schools in New York and studied at Hunter College and New York University. She has published three highly acclaimed collection of stories, The Little Disturbances of Man, Enormous Changes of, at, the last moment, at the Last Minute, and Later the Same Day. Actively involved in the anti-war and feminist movements, Grace Pelly is a member of the War Resisters League Resist and Women's Pentagon Action, and regards him, uh, herself as a, quote, somewhat combative pacifist, and cooperative anarchist, end of quote. <laughs> she has taught at Columbia University, Sarah Lawrence, and City College. She is married to a writer, Robert Nichols, and has two children and one grandchild, and currently divides her time between New York City and uh, Thetford Hill, Vermont. Uh, her translator is Maria Khan, who um, was educated at the Moscow Institute of, of Foreign Languages where she currently teaches English grammar, phonetics, and translation. She professionally translates English prose from 1985. Among the writers she translated, Jane Austen, Howard Fast, uh, D.H. Lawrence, uh, Catherine Ann Porter, Irving Stone, uh, Eudora Welty, John Cheever, um, Bernard Malamud O'Henry, Rudyard Kipling, Arthur Conan Doyle, and of course, Grace Pelly. Les Pritz, greet us. No word at all about my children. <laughs> this is see, this uh, inequality. It's not fair. No, oh, life, life isn't fair. <laughs> We're always being told that. Me too. And which is more unfair, I have to begin. Well, uh, 
Actually, before we met, I sort of never heard of my illustrious author. I came to New York, when was it, please? What year was it? I don't even, <laughs> I don't know. Was I, mean, I mean, I don't know what happened two years, years ago. ago. About. I was living in New York, where I came as a guest, um, on 8th Street, you can imagine, and uh, coming right out of Moscow. And uh, I was naturally interested what, book, what books to uh, take back with me, what new authors appeared during the time, mm, and uh, recently, I mean. And so I started asking questions. The first uh, person I asked was a publisher of uh, American literature, and he immediately said, Grace Paley. I'll try. I say the first person I asked, it must be too loud, no. uh, was a publisher, a New, a New Yorker, who immediately, the first name he gave me was Grace Paley. The second man I asked was a teacher of English literature in Marcel, France. And when I asked him, uh, cur currently visiting in New York, he also said Grace Paley. Uh, that very day on 8th Street, you know, there used to be, I don't know whether it still exists, a um, bookstore on the corner of 8th Street and it must be 6th Avenue. Dalton. Yes. And exactly when I was passing there, there was a gay demonstration next to it. Uh, a man was putting up a uh, notice that Grace Paley was going that night to give a presentation of her book. So I thought it was fate, and I went there. Uh, Grace Paley was there with a the publisher of hers, a young girl. I thought I would immediately uh, approach the author, but the situation was rather tense. I do not know whether you remember it. I do. Uh, there were, <laughs> I mean, there were questions from the audience after the reading, which were not so very friendly towards us Russians. So the person I approached to not to to just uh, arouse. And any animosity was uh, the publisher. And through the publisher, uh, I met uh, Grace Paley, and uh, sort of we never parted that night, no. and never parted since. Yeah. We, we <laughs> then went to the Peacock restaurant, you know, Peacock, and uh, talked for about three hours. Yes, so that was that. Now, as uh, and, and Grace sent me th the, the, the three books of hers that were mentioned here. Mm. Well, uh, it's, it's, uh, it was a sort of literature I, I hadn't met. And with a translator's eye, I, I thought of uh, the possibility of translating these stories also, that the fact that has not been mentioned. Uh, I've been working for 20 years with a group of uh, translators, uh, my friends who are here in the audience now, uh, and what we do is, what we've been doing is we've been translating short stories uh, for 20 years, discussing the translations of each other, and this is what partly this conference that has been going on for two days has been about. So I thought about uh, new book for us to do, and with an eye, uh, with a view uh, to that, I, I, I started reading the stories, and I immediately thought that no, it wasn't possible, it was too difficult. 
but uh, and pro I, I probably wouldn't even dare to approach uh, the translation, even myself, I mean, uh, I, I don't mean the collective work, but just myself. But there was one little story there called Anxiety, some four pages, uh, which touched me so deeply that I thought I would try it, and even though I am a, a lazy sort of person who never, who is never active, I mean, I always, uh, well, there are people who uh, offer their own work uh, to publishers. I never do, I just, uh, I sit and wait till uh, work is offered to me. But this time I did it by myself and offered it to a newspaper and it was published. And then uh, it happened that uh, another story a second story was offered to a friend of mine who is also sitting here, and she was good enough to mention the fact that it uh, was sort of my personal author, <laughs> <laughs> belonging to me. For life. For life. <laughs> For better or worse. <laughs> worse, mostly. And uh, so I translated it. Mm, and uh, well, before I came here, I was only told that I would have to briefly outline the difficulties that I met with, but I suppose uh, I'll have to be more precise while now you speak. Okay. Um, I, t I, I, um, I told Moussa that she had to speak first, and um, she didn't see. She kept saying she couldn't speak first, but she spoke first. <laughs> uh, we, we did meet in that way, as she says, but what happened is somebody said to me, there's a Russian woman um, over there uh, at this reading at Dalton. Uh, it was in 85, because that's when the book came out. She said, there's a woman, a Russian woman over there who'd like to talk to you. And um, I, uh, I, I, I went to speak to her immediately because I thought, I, I just, um, my family's Russian, so if a Russian person wants to speak to me, I take it very seriously. And I go immediately and speak to them, and I did, and um, and that's what began. Uh, and it seemed to have nothing to do with translation, but only about uh, going to the Peacock and talking about uh, our life and our children and so forth. And uh, I guess that's a good way to begin to do anything, at least um, for us women. So I'm going to read um, a piece of a story. Uh, one. Of, of these two stories, I'm going to read a couple of pages of Zagrowski Tells. Um, that's a story, an old man is telling a story, so you'll have to think of me and Moshe that way. And uh, he's, he's telling this story. He's out in the park, Washington Square probably. You know, I don't like to say for sure. Uh, but there is only one, one hanging elm, I think, it's, and that's in Washington Square. He's, he's out there, and he's with his grandchild. His grandchild is black. Um, a woman comes to talk to him, a woman who usually has a more starring role in my stories, so she really has a smaller one here, and begins to ask him questions about this child because she knows him as a kind of a bigoted guy. And, um, and they talk, and, uh, and the story comes out, uh, which I won't go through right now. Um, can be read. And... Um, Some funny things and some sad things happen. Uh, this is called Zagrowski Tells. Uh, I was standing in the park under that tree. They call it the Hanging Elm. 
Once upon a time, it made a big improvement on all kinds of hooligans. Nowadays, if once in a while, no? So, this woman comes up to me, a woman minus a smile. I said to my grandson, oh, oh, Emmanuel, here comes a lady. She was once a beautiful customer of mine in the pharmacy I showed you. Emmanuel says, Grandpa, who? She looks okay now, but not so hot. Well, what can you do? Time takes a terrible toll off the ladies. This is her idea of a hello. Is, what are you doing with that black child? Then she says, who is he? Why are you holding on to him? She gives me a look like God in judgment. You could see it in famous paintings. Then she says, why are you yelling at that poor kid? What, yelling? A history lesson about the park. This is a tree in guidebooks. How are you, by the way, Miss, 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 Miss? I was embarrassed. I forgot her name absolutely. Well, who is he? You got him pretty scared. Me? Don't be ridiculous. It's my grandson. Say hello, Emmanuel. Don't put on an act. Emmanuel shoves his hand in my pocket to be a little more glued to me. Are you going to open your mouth, Sonny? Yes or no? She says, your grandson? Really is. Your grandson? What do you mean, your grandson? <laughs> Emmanuel closes his eyes tight. Did you ever notice children get all mixed up? They don't want to hear about something? They squinch up their eyes? Many children do this. Now listen, Emmanuel, I want you to tell this lady who was the smartest boy in kindergarten. Not a word. God damn it. Open your eyes. It's something new with him. Tell her who was the smartest boy. He was just five. He can already read a book by himself. He stands still. He's thinking. I know his little cute mind. Then he jumps up and down yelling, me, 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 me. He makes a little dance. His grandma calls it his smartness dance. My other ones, three children, grown up for some time already, we're also very smart, but they don't hold a candle to this character. As soon as I get a chance, I'm going to bring him to the city to Hunter for gifted children. He should get a test. Загровский рассказывает: "Стоюсь я в парке под деревом. Его прозвали вяз для висельников." Большое действие имело в свое время на разных хулиганов. Вот бы сегодня, я не скажу всегда, но нет, пусть будет нет. Короче, подходит ко мне женщина, женщина за вычетом улыбки. Я говорю внуку, я говорю, посмотри, Мануил, кто идет. Эта красивая дамочка когда-то покупала в моей аптеке, помнишь, я тебе показывал? И Мануил говорит, деда, где? А что поделаешь, она еще вполне, но уже не так, чтобы очень. Это кошмар, какой урон причиняет дамам время. Вместо «здрасте» я получаю Изя, что вы делаете с этим черным ребенком. Потом она говорит, это чей, зачем вы его держите? Глядит на меня, как бог в судный день. Вы это можете наблюдать на знаменитых картинах. Потом говорит, почему вы кричите на бедного мальчика? Что значит кричите? Немножко учу истории. Как-никак про это дерево сказано в путеводителях. Добрый день, между прочим, мисс... мисс... даже неудобно. Абсолютно забыл, как ее фамилия. Все-таки чей он? Вы его совсем напугали. Кто я? Не смешите меня. Это же мой внук. Поздоровайся, Эммануил, перестань кривляться. Эммануил, чтобы прилипнуть ко мне еще крепче, залезает рукой в мой карман. Сыночек, или ты язык проглотил? Она говорит, внук? То есть как внук, Изя? Вы серьезно? Эммануил крепко зажмуривается. Вы замечали, как дети мешают одно с одним? Когда им нет желания что-то слышать, они закрывают глаза. Многие дети так делают. 
А ну-ка, Эммануил, скажи-ка, тете, кто у нас самый умный мальчик в детском садике? Не полслова. Ты откроешь глаза, свиненок? Еще мне новости. Быстро скажи ей, кто самый умный. Ребенку недавно пять лет исполнилось, а он книжки читает сам. Стоит смирно, думает. Головенка работает, я его знаю. Потом как запрыгает, как закричит «я-я-я» и пританцовывает. Танцы-шманцы от большого ума, как говорит его бабушка. Другие дети, их у меня трое выросло, тоже были очень развитые, но этому типчику они в подметке не годятся. Вот соберусь, отвезу его в город к хантеру для одаренных детей. Пусть его там проверят. Um, you know, I think in a, in a certain sense, my relationship to the Russian language is kind of something that I've invented in a way, but it's a sort of dream. Uh, I think m my grandmother, who I was very close to, basically spoke English um, and Yiddish and then a little bit of Russian words and a little bit of this and a little bit of that. You know, she had five or six languages, but mainly kind of Yiddish and English. But I've always felt this kind of connection that I can't explain. It's almost... You know, people who've been taken by extraterrestrials, they sometimes have this experience of feeling that they've been at this other planet. And I've always felt that I've had this somehow connection that I can't even quite explain to you. So. Okay, and yeah, please. Uh, from, from Arizona, 
Well, you see, uh, of course, you try to, in the rhythm of it, in the intonation, you try to express that uh, very subtly, uh, something uh, that uh, it's not, uh, well, that the, 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 there maybe the details show you that there is a certain uh, um, uh, intonation of something alien to, uh, to the original uh, uh, language, that uh, there is some ex something exotic, see, but like not, this. But not particularly to, you would not select Morinsky as a Georgian accent. Oh, no. No, okay. Oh, oh no. Any other question? Oh, okay. no. Okay, excuse me, yes. Oh, no, it's, I, I think it's absolutely impossible. A question to Ms. Perry. Ms. Perry and Ms. Mark are their translators. Uh, is it simply coincidence that each of the translators and the writers are of the same sex? <laughs> <laughs> At least on this panel. I mean, or, do you think, no, or do you think that has something to do with the relationship and the translation and its effectiveness? I'll tell you, you know, sometimes it's easier to translate uh, really of the same sex because because you, it's easier to penetrate into the psychology and the feel, the way uh, this um, um, this uh, author feels things and perceives things. Certainly, it is uh, somehow closer to you a little bit, because you, um, when you translate something written by a man, it needs much more energy, much much more. <laughs> Um, yeah, well, trying or effort, effort. It certainly does, but it's very interesting. Yeah. Okay. May yes, I please. May I add? Well, please. Yeah. It's, it's very hard for me to translate women writers, but uh, until lately, a translation was predominantly woman business in the oh. USSR. So it's just coincidence here. May I? Yeah, please. <laughs> it was not difficult at all for me to translate Mr. Puzo's Godfather. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yes, please. And it was quite difficult for me to translate Grace Paley's Zagrovsky Tales. I would like to add one thing. Uh, I don't think um, I don't think what sh you should bear in mind that in English uh, gender doesn't influence the. Well, the the texture of the um, uh, of the sentence, yeah. Well, it's not reflected grammatically, well, in English. So therefore, for a Russian, well, it doesn't really matter whom he translates. Uh, what's the uh, in a sense, what he translates? Well, whether it's written by a man or by a woman. In in the final analysis, huh? You translate once, then you see. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, not everybody agrees with it, but. Uh, okay.
Um, oh, okay. Uh, just to uh, make it louder, this yeah. question is to Mary Morris whether in her writing there's a uh, earning to go back to her roots and find her roots through uh, writing. Um, uh, Goethe said that um, writers are basically homesick people, that writers suffer from homesickness and that basically writers are people who are wandering through the world either in their own minds or physically um, searching for a place that's, that's home. And I think, um, I mean, I, I grew up in the Midwest and I, I still have dreams. Like I could be in the middle of a Guatemalan jungle and all of a sudden it'll start snowing and then I'll be following these tracks that take me past my school to my house where I was a little girl. I mean, there's just this desire for home that I can't quite understand. Um, but I think in my last book, Wall to Wall, I, I tried to deal with this, with this quite a bit. Um, but I think it's just something um, natural to writers, I think, or at least me as a writer. Okay. Great. Um, I, I really don't feel that, uh, I don't feel that I'm looking for my roots. I, I feel like I'm in my roots in some way. I'm, I mean, I don't have that um, longing, partly because I always, um, I never lived in a place less than 20 years. Uh, so I was there. And um, now I'm living someplace, and if I live long enough, I'll be there 20 years. So. Uh, uh, so that I don't, I don't really have that uh, that 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 need. And uh, as I said, I felt very much at home listening to this Russian. But but uh, that that that's who they were, and the, they were those people. And uh, I, I myself am interested in lots of other people too. I mean, this is one story, and uh, it you know I, I thought about it a lot. But it's not just about some guy. It's also about the country. It's about life between black and white people. And um, I, I, uh, I don't know, either, um, either I'm um, something wrong with me or something, or I'm already a root. <laughs> <laughs> okay, somebody else wants, right there, yes, please. You, you. Uh, well, thank you for the compliment. Um, um, the answer to the latter part is no. It doesn't. Well, well, I've translated uh, John Donne. Well, and I'm far. Well, I, well, there is no comparison between my humble self and John Donne, for instance. Well, the second thing is. Um, do I despise my work? Well, well, that is, do I respect my work? Do I care for it? <laughs> well, I care about my work only as long, well, in the process when I'm doing that. And uh, when it's over, well, my attitudes to that can range uh, from, well, with a total disregard to, well, sort of a, a mild infatuation, yeah? Well, especially uh, uh, when it's done, well, uh, shortly afterwards, uh, well, when it's composed, something is composed, a poem. Well, uh, well, I sort of think that it's a pretty good work, yeah. Well, as for Nabokov, um, uh, what you have to understand once, uh, you have to understand one thing about Nabokov, and uh, it's a rather interesting question about, well, uh, his, um, um, uh, his attempt, or his uh, translation of, well, for instance, of Lolita. Uh, 
Um, you see, what, what uh, in my view, uh, the explanation, explanation of the Nabokov phenomenon is, is like this. Well, he always wanted to be a poet from the threshold. That was his sort of main ambition. He always, in a sense, thought about himself along those lines. Well, he was sober enough, to his great credit, to, to realize after encounter with two or three poets superior, well, um, uh, to him in talent and um, in facility, if you will, uh, that he isn't a match for them, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So he kept, though he kept writing poems, he didn't. Uh, try to impress upon the world that he's a poet. However, he kept writing prose. If you think about all Nabokov's novels, they're essentially about one and the same phenomenon. Uh, that is about, it's about uh, alternative, it's about dual, twin, uh, uh, mirror image, uh, uh, twin brother, that sort of thing, a mirror reflection. I don't really know what, well, uh, you, well, what it tells you in a sense that underneath that is one, is a certain pairing principle which is to me, well, harks back to a very simple thing, to the rhyme. In a sense, his novels, uh, well, from whatever this, uh, from, uh, from the very threshold to Ada, is sort of a king-size version of a rhyme. Okay, any other questions, please? <laughs> yes, please. Uh, my question went to uh, Musa. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> Any other questions, please? Yes, please. Uh, my question is about the status of the translators in, in Russia. We hear here in America, I don't know how true that is, but the status of the translators in Russia was actually higher than the status of many translators in this country. But it was a very honest activity. I assume everybody heard the question, right? About the status of a uh, translator in Russia. Well, it's a difficult question, as they say, because, uh, you know, uh, on the one hand, with, uh, Mr. Friedberg was uh, talking about it, and he said that uh, the position of uh, translator in the Soviet Union was unprivileged, and the translators uh, were regarded as uh, potential dissidents, which is true. And I sort of, I, I would say that, uh, yes, and we are, of course, hugely underpaid as compared to the original writers, but that they always be, were always being afraid of being, the whole section being kicked out of the writers' union. That's but, but uh, it's our, it's the books uh, translated by us that were bought by the reader, not books by uh, the Soviet writers. So they <laughs> had to, to take this into consideration too. On the other hand, I would say that, yes, and uh, somebody else said that um, we translators had an, an inferiority complex or something. Did, was it you, Misha? You said something. Yes. 
but uh, I would say, uh, I did say, that I, I would say that it was their inferiority complex that made them dislike us, I mean the original writers, because they knew that we knew Russian better than they did, that they were some, sometimes quite illiterate people, our renowned uh, Soviet writers, and this also an, uh, aroused a certain animosity. Uh, but actually, I would say yes, that uh, in the high sense of the word, probably we are more privileged, although it, it, it's complex, because uh, on the other hand, you feel, uh, I feel in this country that uh, spiritual talents and cultural talents are, much, are better appreciated generally than in the Soviet Union. Here. Here. Here? Yes. Uh, Nina, you wanted to answer something? No, I cannot judge. I've been here for five days. Uh, no, please not enough. <laughs> I, I, really, I really cannot judge because I've been here only five days. You know, it's difficult for me to judge. As to the, the standing, as to the position of translators in, in Russia or, or in Latvia where I live, you know, really, they're, uh, they are respected. Well, I'll, I've been living uh, in Latvia for 40 years, and uh, I must admit that they are respected. It doesn't mean that they have a very easy life, because um, now, under the circumstances, that there is a terrible lack of paper, and there are very many talented and experienced translators from uh, American to, into Latvian, we have four or five just specialists in American and English literature, and uh, they are having a very difficult time because their uh, translations, they really don't know when they're go uh, going to be published because there's no paper. Well, there's only one possibility. There are co-ops, you know, cooperative uh, office, uh, publishing houses. Uh, of course, mostly they produce Chase and Agatha Christie. Uh, <laughs> but sometimes you can squeeze in something really uh, worth uh, publishing and worth reading. But I don't. I translate from Latvian into Russian, and mostly classics, yes. Yes, and uh, you know, but within the limits of the writers' union, well, we have quite a strong section of uh, translators, uh, really, and a very active one, the English and the Latvian. Uh, section and they have uh, quite a lot of work they've been doing they've been educating uh, um, bringing up n uh, young people from the university and it's a great problem for us now because young people will even if they're interested in translation they see the situation and after all it's your daily bread and you know how it is yes um, but, uh, and I, sh I, I m must admit that in our union, in uh, Latvia, uh, translators are respected. Yes, I can't say, I can't uh, really. Uh -huh. uh, 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 Victor, please. Uh, I, I think the no, point is writers. not. Okay. Sorry. Mm? Sorry. Go ahead. Uh, the point is not the uh, position of translation, translators as much as a position of translator, translation in Soviet Union, because the 
in this weird society, only translated fiction could retain normal human values and dissident literature, which is was underground. And overground was only translate, translated literature. So it's not the point of human uh, position of translators as much as position of translate, which is rather revered in Soviet Union. Still now, still now. Okay. Yes, in this closed and weird society. Okay, any other questions, please? Yes, please. Um, uh, excuse me, everybody hear the question? No. The, the question to Mr. Brodsky when he translates himself, whether he feels that he creates something new or he's doing something artificial, and what was the third one? Uh-huh, well, dance is, uh, um, dance is this, well, I, t I, the, uh, I don't feel that I create something new, well, because I s uh, try to stay as close to the original as I can, uh, but um, th the general sensation, well, well, when you uh, when you manage to achieve that here and there, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, you feel uh, you feel uh, considerable satisfaction. But on the whole, my attitude towards uh, translating my uh, own work is sort of like solving a crossword puzzle. Uh, we'll probably take last question uh, from the audience. There is anyone? Nobody wants to be lost or what? That is, uh, I would like to add that I w I d I d I'm trying to make it as good a poem in English as I can. Well, that is, uh, well, I set my sides rather high. Well, that's for the poem. Well, more or less for the same size as, um, well, uh, as uh, well, we're pertinent to the original. But the process itself is more like solving crossword puzzles than anything else, than anything else that I know I'm familiar with. So, last call. Yes, please. Mr. Brodsky, can, can what do you said about uh, Mr. Mamikov about uh, resorting to fiction after failed attempts at poetry, can that also be said of your own process? No, it cannot. And I forgot to, to mention one thing. Uh, well, that is, uh, as I began to uh, answer your question about uh, Nabokov, um, um, I forgot to mention, well, my, my main impulse was to add one more thing that is translating himself back into Russian, well in the, as was the case with, Lali, with Lalita, presumably for, for him was yet another twist of the double game. Yeah, yeah, well, and uh, as for Faulkner, no, 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 this is, uh, to me he's simply one of the uh, three great writers of the 20th century, well, I would say, well, now I'm just using this opportunity. First, I would say Musil, Robert Musil, second, Andrei Platonov, and third, uh, Faulkner. And there is no hierarchy here. On those heights, there is no hierarchy. And only after some interval go other people like Joyce and well, uh, somebody else, yeah. Okay, I think we now it's time to, to thank our distinguished panel for the pleasure of their presentation. Thank you very much for coming, and uh, as we said, wine reception waits for everyone there. Good. <laughs> <laughs>
Возьми свои, не забудь свои сигареты. Если ты помнишь, что это такое. Two of you look like sisters or cousins, actually. Sister. 